Today, I think we should head back in time to Kalamazoo, Michigan in the 1940s. Okay. I'm guessing you want to go back and pick up a vintage Gibson? Well, that too, uh, especially if you're paying. But uh, Kalamazoo is not just the birthplace of a lot of really great guitars. It's also the birthplace of curb cuts in the United States. So back in the 40s, Kalamazoo was the first city to install the small ramps cut into the sidewalks at intersections as part of a pilot project to help with the employment of veterans with disabilities. Today, curb cuts are taken for granted. They're everywhere. What started many decades ago in Kalamazoo was a transformative design for people with disabilities. It gained national attention through the disability rights movement and has since been widely adopted with benefits extending beyond the original intent. It's been so effective that there's a phenomenon named after it, the curb cut effect. So how does this phenomenon and the idea of disability forward design apply to housing? Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. And today on the show, we're going to talk about disability forward design and how it applies to housing and how accessible and inclusive housing has evolved over time. We are joined today by Allie Cannington. From the Bay Area, Allie is a white, Jewish, queer, disabled advocate and is the senior manager of advocacy and organizing at the Kelsey. The Kelsey's mission is to pioneer disability-forward housing solutions that open doors to more homes and opportunities for everyone. Along with coordinating community engagement for the 240-plus homes in the Kelsey's pipeline, Allie leads the organization's initiatives that aim to create the market and policy conditions so inclusive housing becomes the norm. Allie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so can we start our conversation just with some background on the Kelsey? Sure. I'm really excited to be in conversation with y'all today. And the Kelsey is an organization that is co-led by people with and without disabilities. And as you said in the intro, we pioneer disability forward housing solutions. What does that mean? It means that we both create housing as well as change systems and help change market conditions so that disability forward housing becomes the norm. And let me just tell you a little bit about what I mean when I say disability forward. It means to center on the perspective of people with all different types of disabilities and the recognition that designing spaces, policies, and programs for disability access and inclusion advances opportunities for everyone, just like you talked about in way back in uh, Kalamazoo and the curb cut effect. Disability Forward recognizes disability as an identity that is valued and visible and creates spaces where all people of all different identities and backgrounds can be seen, welcomed, and supported. And so the Kelsey advances inclusion and creates access not to solve or dilute disability, but to include and embrace it. There's over 61 million of us, people with all different types of disabilities across the country, and we all, in some way, uh, disproportionately experience housing barriers, whether that's in lack of affordable housing, lack of accessible housing, lack of housing that is inclusive and integrated for the diversity of support needs that people with disabilities may have. And also there's, we have the highest rate of housing discrimination in the country. And so the Kelsey aims to create on the ground scalable solutions. We have 240 homes in our pipeline currently based in the Bay Area, and we do technical assistance and initiatives to change the market conditions so that these communities can be the norm across the country. 
Oh, that's really great. And can you just tell me a little bit about how the Kelsey started? Sure. So the Kelsey started with the relationship between Michaela, our co-founder, and Kelsey, our other co-founder. And Michaela and Kelsey grew up together only a few months apart. And Michaela is a non-disabled person. And Kelsey was a person with disabilities and she needed support in her own home most of the time in order to live her best life. And they both wanted to, like the average, you know, 18 year old wants to move out of their parents' basement if that's what they're up to. And so that's what Kelsey and Michaela did. And it took Michaela about three months to find housing and it took Kelsey more than eight years to find housing. And that was even with the amount of support and privileges that Michaela and Kelsey both have as, as white women, as women who have access to, to family supports and money. And so they really dreamed of what can be made possible so that these inequities will end. And that led to the establishment of the Kelsey as an organization. The Kelsey as an organization came from Michaela and Kelsey's relationship and the continued stories of people with all different types of disabilities who are facing the same barriers or even more acute than Kelsey did. And so here we are today. Kelsey unfortunately passed away about six months after the organization was founded, but we continue to lift up her legacy in our work every day. And really, it comes back to relationships and the stories of disabled people and their families across the country, which is, you know, more than often we hear in the news, but we're everywhere. And so we're really excited to ground ourselves in those lived experiences and create scalable solutions that really can not just benefit the person with a disability, but benefits everyone. That's really fantastic just to think of an individual person's story and and how it can grow to be so much more than that one person through a relationship with another person that grows into an organization that's truly a legacy and impacting so many people today. And speaking of bringing it up today, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your role in the organization. Sure. I come to this work as someone who's been organizing within the disability rights movement for over a decade. And as the senior manager of advocacy and organizing, I take what I've heard time and time again over the years that housing is the top issue impacting people with disabilities lives and really use our platform at the Kelsey to advance initiatives that help to change policy and the market conditions. And a part of that is ensuring that people with disabilities are not just at the table, but are co-creators of the solutions. And so, I, you know, we do that at the local level in our multifamily housing developments. As I mentioned, we have 240 homes in our pipeline, one in San Francisco, the Kelsey Civic Center, and another, the Kelsey Air Station, which we have our groundbreaking happening at the end of June and making sure that people with disabilities are co-leading these solutions and decisions about design, future operations, and so on. And then also translate that to how we create policies that can transform how our housing infrastructure functions to be more equitable to people with disabilities. And I do that through a variety of ways, but most 
often through being the co-chair of the Consortium on Constituents with Disabilities Housing Task Force. And the consortium, or CCD, is the largest cross-disability national policy coalition in the country. And so really humbled to be advancing solutions at the federal level as well. But the reality is, you know, guys, we can't, the Kelsey can't do it alone. The problem is too big for us to do it alone. And so partnerships to overcome the housing market barriers is paramount to the future we want. We want to, and we need to create. Ellie, I'd like to look back just a a little bit, you know, thinking of the origin of of the Kelsey and, you know, even maybe not going back quite as far as Kalamazoo uh, in the 40s, but if you want to, just like how has the market changed over time? And you're doing a lot. There's there's a lot more focus now than I imagine there has been in the past. You know, can you give us a quick rundown of that evolution of the market and the approaches to disability forward design? Yeah, such a great point. There continues to be such an evolution in terms of how disability and people with disabilities are seen and treated in the market. And so let me just first, you know, keep it really real with y'all and something we we already know, but our housing market as it stands today is compounded by a history of ableist and racist housing policies that continue to dictate the housing options for millions of people today. And we see that particularly in kind of the housing crisis is disproportionately impacting black and brown people with disabilities. And one particular part of our nation's history is the forced segregation and institutionalization of people with disabilities. In that for generations, government spending sanctioned large scale institutions where people were housed in often poor and at times really abusive conditions where they may have had a roof over their head and some food and some care and got some help, but people had little to no autonomy and freedom and were completely isolated and segregated from their friends, families, communities, and neighborhoods. And so due to movements for disability rights and community inclusion, majority of those large-scale institutions shut down, thankfully, rightfully so. But the federal government has really failed at securing an infrastructure that fully meets the both housing and services needs of people with disabilities. And so this was in the 80s and 90s. In 1990, we had the Americans with Disabilities Act passed, which continues to be the civil rights legislation for the you know, over 61 million disabled people across this country. But it wasn't until the 1999 Supreme Court decision of LC versus Olmstead that set into stone our rights as disabled people under the ADA that we could not be segregated, that we have the right to receive services in the most integrated setting possible. So that opened the door even more and said, okay, we need to ensure that there is housing in the community that people with disabilities uh, can live and thrive in. And so that right may have been declared. You know, we have the ADA, we have Title II, and we have this right, but really the right has never been made a true reality with the federal and state and local governments creating the commensurate supply of housing that is affordable, accessible, integrated and inclusive for people with disabilities. And so we know through the statistics today, we know through personal accounts 
of people from across the country that people with disabilities still do not have access to housing that we can afford, housing that we can get into, that we can access and and have our needs met, depending, you know, there's a diverse amount of needs that our bodies have, especially as they grow and age. And then housing that is, you know, not just where people with disabilities may live in the same building, but that there's equal access to all amenities in a building. We still have yet to really have that fully realized across the country. And so that's where the Kelsey comes in. That's where our partners come in to continue to push our market to not just see disability and people with disabilities as an issue of compliance. Yes, we have laws that we need to comply to, but people with disabilities are in all of our lives and actually really make our communities more innovative, more wonderful. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but we are everywhere. And so our housing infrastructure has to finally, you know, really make the investments and needed so that people with disabilities and all people have housing that they can access, that they can afford, and that they can be um, free of discrimination and be included in. That's great. And as I think about, you know, what you said earlier, where um, you want to do all this and serve, you know, folks with all types of disabilities and, and consider housing and services, it can seem fairly daunting. And I'm sure that there needs to be a lot of thinking. And how does one go about, you know, the design or, or education and, and helping people do this kind of thing? Yeah. So I think, you know, first and foremost, it's really important because of the unique the, the, that history that I just spoke to around people with disabilities being, you know, forced into settings where they have little to no choice. It's really critical that our market and policy solutions, that there is a parallel path of the housing that's needed and the services that are needed. And so that they, you know, they can be coordinated and, and housing should be disability forward in its plan for operations. But it is really important that those two fields of housing and services remain separate, but still linked and strategically linked and coordinated. And, you know, I think we're really excited at the Kelsey because through our initial design process for both of our our housing communities, we hired on Mikatan Architecture, and it's a disability owned architecture firm that specializes in universal design because we wanted to go beyond. We didn't want to just meet the code requirements. We wanted to really have a have a proof point of our mission, which is disability forward housing solutions, open, you know, more uh, homes and opportunities for everyone. And so we want to go beyond the minimum expectations and really create a space that is as accessible and as you know, welcoming to people of all different types of backgrounds and identities and disabilities, as well as people without disabilities. The Kelsey created the housing design standards for accessibility and inclusion in partnership with Eric Mikatin of Mikatin Architecture. And this is one tool that we are really excited about because it gives people a roadmap of how to, to create and build housing that is truly disability forward. So can you share some of the, you know, the key principles or key points of those design standards? Totally. So 
they were shaped with the support of our inclusive design council. So that was people with all different types of disabilities, as well as workshops with designers, developers, and architects. And it's an open source tool, as I said, to encourage disability forward design. There are 300 design elements that help owners and designers to integrate disability access into all housing projects. And as I mentioned, there's such a diversity of disabilities. So the disability access that is threaded throughout the design standards goes beyond just mobility access, which is, you know, what our minds automatically go to is, you know, me and my wheelchair, which yes, we, we wheel around, we're here. Mobility access is critical. And it is just one piece of the like beautiful, diverse puzzle that is disability access. And so the design standards include impact areas, including hearing and acoustics, vision, cognitive access, and general health and wellness. And we've also identified the intersectional benefits of each element around affordability, sustainability, racial equity, and safety. So those are some of the components. You know, how do those come together in a project? Do you have examples? As you say, there's 240 units, I think, uh, coming online. Um, Can you talk about either existing or ones to come? Totally. Yeah, there's many ways. So, you know, the design standards were released maybe about less than a year ago. And so we're really committed to our rollout and ensuring that people know that this tool exists. And you're absolutely right that we have two housing developments in our pipeline at the Kelsey that in which the housing design standards elements have been embedded from the beginning. And, you know, Developers and architects, whether they've worked with us specifically or they've used the design standards in, you know, in their own endeavors have only said really exciting, nice things about it. And we're using that momentum to directly impact not just the 240 plus homes. Like, as I said, we, we don't want to be the only ones doing this. We want to make inclusive housing the norm across the market. And We have over a thousand housing units under design or construction that have been directly impacted by the housing standards and then also indirectly impacting thousands of more units um, since the standards have been released. And, you know, we're also really excited about how the standards can be a tool for local, state, and even one day federal, you know, programs to help incentivize developers to go beyond the minimum requirement for accessibility. So for example, most recently, the city of San Jose in California incorporated the use of the standards in their latest NOFA, Notice of Funding Availability. That's a perfect example of like shifting systems by embedding disability forward housing solutions. And we also got some committed firms. The list is growing every day. Committed firms champion the housing design standards for accessibility and inclusion by actively using and sharing them. And some of the committed firms include David Baker Architects and WRNS Studio. And we have some other committed firms on our website, including the design standards which I, of course, will plug again and again, uh, because we're just um, so excited and and eager to continue to have 
champions join us in and using the standards as well as sharing them. Well, that's exciting that you're uh, seeing adoption at the local level and among all the design firms. As you've undertaken this, are there certain challenges that you've seen with some of the standards and, and have you adjusted them over time or, or how have you overcome any of those challenges you might have seen? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a big part of, as I think about shifting our culture and understanding of disability, which is a big part of, of my role, is really shifting from a mainstream kind of assumption that we have about disability, that it's all about compliance and therefore, honestly, fear, right? Fear that you're not going to comply and then there's going to be ramifications. And, you know, we need code, we need rights, we need legal protections. But what's happened is that as a result, when we only think about disability in, in the context of compliance, then we're, we're really missing the whole picture that disability access isn't just something to comply with. It's something to desire to implement because it benefits everyone. Um, and we, we are seeing that because whether you live with a disability right now, or, you know, I, I hate to break it to y'all, but if you age or, you know, you never know what's going to happen, disability can become the reality in so many people's lives. We see, you know, our parents and our grandparents aging. There's disability that is being developed there. And also there's, it's just initial results, but with COVID-19, it's what we've been talking about in the disability rights movement as a mass disabling event. We've had 1.2 million more disabled people because of COVID-19. And so how can we, as the Kelsey and as, you know, practitioners in this work, how can we just honor and, and yes, follow the code, make sure we do things correctly, but not have that be the only way that we think about disability in that. And I think the housing design standards supports the effort of really seeing disability access as essential, as opportunistic for creating the housing that we all need in our lives and in our neighborhoods and in our communities. And so I, I, I get really um, on my soapbox a little bit about this, but when it comes down to it, one of the challenges we've had, and we've really worked with our colleagues in the disability rights field, is to ensure that when people use the, the design standards, that it is that it is not a replacement for code. So the design standards is an additive and, you know, every locality and funding source may have different code requirements. So the standards are not supposed to replace code, but a tool for going beyond the minimum code requirements. The code is meant to be the floor. We want to reach the sky. Uh, I, I like that way of putting it. And just thinking back um, you know, to where we started in the conversation uh, with the curb cut effect, you know, what are some things that you're seeing in the standards that that you think have that same kind of effect or or opportunity to have that effect? So, you know, there's so many elements throughout it. I'll give a few examples. So, for instance, we have, you know, innovative ways of thinking about grab bars and grab bars 
that go behind a toilet, which is one of our like very, you know, the 300 elements, it gets really nitty gritty um, in detail. But these nicer looking grab bars that we recommend in the design standards are placed behind a toilet and can be also used as a towel rack um, if the resident doesn't need them as a grab bar. That's a very, very small example. Um, Another one is, you know, gender neutral bathrooms and large single stall bathrooms. It doesn't just benefit um, someone with a disability who may need an assistant to use the restroom. It also benefits families. It also benefits people who are LGBTQ who need safety in that regard. I also think that some of our design elements in regards to cognitive access in terms of wayfinding around a building, it not just supports people with specific cognitive disabilities, but I don't know about you all. I am exhausted. This is there like in life, there's a lot happening and to have extra really aesthetically pleasing colors and directions using images can be really helpful after a long day and trying to, you know, get back to my unit or a little kiddo is with me and they get lost and they need to find their way back. And there's all these different ways of communicating where you are in a given building. That's going to benefit so many people who come in and out of the future buildings. That's interesting. And I, you know, it makes me think of, you know, I actually have my father-in-law had a spinal cord injury and was in a rehabilitation center at the, the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. And they did such a nice job in that whole neighborhood where there was beautiful green space and, and the local businesses, I think, made things very friendly to the whole population there. And I'd say like, it felt just comfortable having people, you know, feel very independent and be able to get around and be unfettered by, you know, many things that are kind of in normal life. As you think about, you know, beyond the housing unit and into the neighborhood, does it stretch out into communities and neighborhoods? Totally. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think the success of a disability forward housing community is directly tied to what surrounds that given building. And so a part of the design standards include being close to service amenities, people with disabilities and and all people um, have different needs, whether it be healthcare, childcare, different appointments they need to get to. And really a part of the design standards, one of the elements include, is the building close to these types of amenities so that people can live close to their their service providers and cities that they need in order to uh, thrive in their lives. Also, there are elements around like transportation access as well. We are really transit-oriented development is really important for the Kelsey's work and thinking about how people arrive at future buildings too, whether they're close to a public transit stop or to make sure that there is a wheelchair accessible loading area in the building or alongside the building so that people who may need paratransit or other forms of accessible transportation can get right up to the door and comfortably and safely get into the building. And of course, that's going to benefit 
other people who also need to get dropped off. And, you know, we unfortunately, people with disabilities are disproportionately impacted by collisions and not being seen in the street. And I can't even tell you enough from my own experience how many times I'm a wheelchair user and I've been dropped off in so many unsafe places where people can't see me, where cars are coming to a head. And so we've embedded design elements and how people arrive at the building so that we don't just ensure safety, but that we're also comfortable, um, yeah, arriving and leaving the community. Ellie, I really appreciated hearing how thoughtful and comprehensive the approach is that that you're taking as you think about this and set the standards and look to implement the standards. We've talked a lot about sort of the standards from the perspective of the built environment and what we do to the built environment. Do the standards also cover you know, considerations for just applying for and, and uh, getting access to apartment, finding an apartment, moving in, just that whole experience of getting an apartment? Yeah, it does. It touches on it. And, you know, I just got to say that people with disabilities you know, as, as I mentioned at the, at the start, we experience such an array of barriers in not just living in the housing itself, but getting access to the housing we need. And one of the areas of the design standards that one of the many, uh, it talks about how to create a more accessible disability forward, like leasing process. And one of the things that I don't know about you, but I have very like privileged with a college education. And yet like I still get confused when I'm signing a lease. It's pretty inaccessible to an everyday person, even someone like myself. And so a part of the housing design standards is looking at how leases and applications can be more accessible. There's something called plain language. And that was really coined by people with developmental disabilities, including autistic leaders in the community and in the disability rights movement who, you know, really translate wonky, um, confusing language to language that anyone, you know, who has a third or fourth grade reading level could be able to understand clearly. This doesn't just benefit people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, but also thinking about our reading level gaps in general in this country. We still have a lot of work to do there. And, you know, so many future residents of any building should be diverse in the languages they speak. So not just the translation of leases and and all of the materials, marketing materials be in, in different languages, but also, you know, we're modeling having plain language leases. And they're really helpful for all of us. Um, if you haven't checked out kind of examples of plain language resources, definitely do it because it really can help all of us better understand what any type of concept is, including the lease that you may want to sign. That's a great point. And uh, like you said, so for more of the country to be like that, I think developers, you know, considering building new housing would need to be aware and, and able and know where to go to kind of follow the design standard. How do developers get started in, in that? 
Yeah, we want to hear from you. We want to connect. You can go to www.thekelsey.org backslash design. And there you can download a copy of the housing design standards yourself, but then also reach out to us directly. My colleague, Fatima Ori, leads incredible work for the design standards. We'll give you a one-on-one orientation, figure out how you want to use the housing design standards and how they can be most beneficial to you. Like this is a two-way street. We built this tool and it's going to help make your work better in the end. And I just want to say as someone who's been in, in the work of advancing justice and inclusion for people with disabilities for a long, long time, we're often an afterthought. And so A common question we get is how early should decisions be made about disability access in design and construction? And our answer is the earlier you make the decision to include disability in the housing equation, the easier and more cost-effective it is. And so come to us sooner rather than later. But also, if you've already built your, you know, multifamily housing development and you're looking to make things more disability forward, don't let that you know, stop you, come still reach out to us. And we will really look at how the standards can meet you where you are, and then also challenge you to do the best work that you've ever done. Hallie, thank you so much. This is a fantastic conversation. Uh, Really excited to have had you on the show today and looking forward to seeing more of this work go on and and, uh, see greater adoption of the standards out in the market. Thanks so much for having me today, y'all. I'm, I'm really glad to, to have this conversation and hope it's just the beginning. The Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, and audio producer, Dalton O'Colla. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.